Welcome back to Season 9 of the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. We are sponsored by the International Relations Organization at the University of Virginia. I'm your host, Anna Malcolm. Today, we are discussing gender-based violence and sexual exploitation and abuse in the humanitarian world. We recognize that this can be a sensitive subject to some listeners and want to let you know that this episode features references to cases of sexual assault. To learn more about this topic, I'm sitting down with second-year intended global development major Libby New and second-year political science major Yixing Shen. How are you both doing today? Doing well, thank you for asking. I'm doing well, thank you so much. What led you both as researchers to this topic today? So I think we initially began discussing sexual exploitation and abuse as a potential topic after I got assigned it as a debate topic in Professor Gelsdorf's class from the Batten School. So we were looking at accountability systems in humanitarian aid organizations and what it should look like when a humanitarian actor is actually the committer of sexual abuse and exploitation. And that just kind of got our wheels turning for how this applies to global trends in general and how it'd be a really interesting outlet for our research. Yeah, that's awesome that you're able to talk about this in class. And in regards to sexual exploitation abuse and gender-based violence within this humanitarian field, what exactly is happening? Could you give us a little more background information about this situation? Yeah, definitely. So it's really only been over the past two decades that gender-based violence has been brought into the humanitarian world as an issue that needs to be addressed by multi-sector approaches. However, obviously its presence has been around long before then, particularly with sexual exploitation and abuse. There's similar trends where over the past few decades, sexual exploitation and abuse, particularly by humanitarian actors, has been brought into media narratives and demands for accountability have been kind of put to light. So yeah, both have been prevalent long before the early 90s. However, they really only fit themselves into the narratives of humanitarian organizations and their priorities for prevention within the past 20 years. What exactly was that shift from the early 90s into these recent past 20 years? Is there something that we can kind of tie it back to, or has it just been the nature of the work? I would say it has, like, it'd be hard to pin a certain point, however, in relation to the nature of the work. I think it fits into a greater trend of humanitarian and aid workers becoming more cognizant of what their actions do to affected populations beyond direct and discreet providing of goods and services. So I think it really just fits into this narrative of aid organizations starting to critique their actions and really pose the question, are we doing more harm than good in these situations? You mentioned earlier the briefly the types of accountability systems that either exist or are lacking. What exactly is in place within the humanitarian world and is it being effective? Yeah, so I think it varies case by case, which honestly might be part of the issue in that there's not one kind of overarching accountability system for all these different actors in the humanitarian world. One of the largest 
means of promoting and I guess distinguishing accountability has been through donors pulling of funding, which is obviously controversial because if you're pulling funds away from an organization that is at the end of the day dedicated to helping populations, it becomes problematic because these populations then aren't receiving the same quality of aid. But then on the other hand, you have to address what that quality of aid actually is if the humanitarian actors are truly acting as perpetrators of sexual exploitation and abuse. So one case study um, done in Uganda that has been argued to kind of be like a threshold for what strong accountability should look like was implemented by the World Bank. So it was in response to their Uganda Transport Sector Development Project, which essentially led to an influx of construction workers into really rural communities, um, namely the Bigoti community. And here, project workers sexually harassed and assaulted teenage girls, um, which resulted in significant increase of teenage pregnancy rates. It increased HIV and aid presence in the community and resulted in a lot of girls dropping out of school. And initially, representatives of the bank's project were unresponsive to the after effects and really didn't want to take accountability or responsibility for the maleffects of um, this road project in the Bigoti community. However, there was a shift in September 2015, and community members filed a formal complaint with the inspection panel, which is the World Bank's independent accountability mechanism. And the panel's findings ultimately led to systemic efforts to prevent gender violence and here we can see a lot of accountability being taken by the World Bank. One, by their redirectment of funding, they actually stopped the Rhodes Project and instead decided to focus their efforts on preventing gender-based violence. And you can also see it in the local demand for accountability. So it's kind of a two-pronged, the organization needs to recognize their wrongdoing and the community empowers itself in demanding effective accountability. So then what some of the reparations looked like done by the World Bank was they ended up giving survivors of sexual exploitation um, psychosocial support, and they directed financial support to meet the immediate needs of their children. More than three dozen young girls and women received skill and job training and financial support to start their own businesses, and then 35 girls clubs, which provided more than 1,000 adolescent girls with life skills training, were set up near and around the affected communities. And then finally, a $670,000 grant was given to support children opportunities through protection and empowerment in the districts that were affected by this roads project. So that's one example. It's great to see some of these organizations, such as the World Bank, starting to take accountability. Obviously, it's a problem that this is something that we have to address within the field. But have there been any times that you can think of where accountability fully was just not taken. The situations were taken out of control within these places and the humanitarian aid essentially failed in what it had to do. Yeah, so I think there's many cases that could properly answer this question. For example, in 2002, there was a food for sex scandal in West Africa, which was targeting women and mainly women and children in refugee camps and it was withholding supplies until they performed sexual favors. However, in response to that, an independent report was put out and it essentially listed suggestions for how to prevent instances like this in the future. 
And one of the main suggestions was increasing women's posts put out by humanitarian actors. However, in 2019, you can kind of see how a lot of these recommendations still haven't taken hold. So in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, there was recently 83 accounts of sexual abuse and exploitation reported under their 10th Ebola outbreak. And here, just beginning to look at the disproportionate female posts that were assigned to these health centers. It's one thing to make recommendations, but it's another thing to stick to those recommendations, especially when it's the same organizations that are involved in both scandals. Who do these are concerning incidents that you point to in relation to sexual exploitation and humanitarian work? And it seems like many of these are isolated incidents that we can point to within these larger groups where accountability is strongly lacking. What about for gender-based violence? How are these incidents being reported in the field and dealt with largely? Yeah, so as mentioned before, gender-based violence is more of a long-standing trend, um, but it certainly feeds into these isolated instances of sexual exploitation and abuse. Sexual exploitation and abuse, it's often directed towards um, children or really any vulnerable population, whereas gender-based violence is really gendered. However, by uplifting women and girls, um, who are one of the largest vulnerable populations and demographics to cases of sexual exploitation and abuse, um, you're kind of, I suppose, killing two birds with one stone in that you're addressing this long-term pattern, social phenomena, but you're also curtailing instances uh, where populations are vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. And we were actually able to sit down, ask a few questions to Jean Word, who has worked for over 25 years in the humanitarian aid realm as a consultant on gender-based violence. There's been some overlaps with sexual exploitation abuse. Um, however, her main focus is gender-based violence and really working with UN agencies and government bilaterals for prevention efforts. So we were able to ask her um, how she got involved with the field of gender-based violence, and we actually learned a lot regarding both the operational and emotional professionalism that's needed to work uh, in this field. So I have been working in the humanitarian space since 1999. My first humanitarian job was in Kosovo, developing a program to address violence against women in a, a town called Pea in Kosovo. And from there, I went on to work on the first global project funded by the Bureau of Population, Refugees and Migration on gender-based violence or violence against women. And have been, after that project, that was a four-year project. And after that project was over, I started consulting. And that was about, what, 20 years ago now and have been consulting ever since. And I've worked all over the world have lived in lived in Kenya for 15 of those years and just recently a couple of years ago moved back to the US. So I work on GBV or violence against women. We often refer to it in the humanitarian space. We refer to violence against women as gender-based violence. And I also work on the issue of sexual exploitation and abuse. And I do a lot of, like I cover a lot of different areas just because when I started in the GBV field, there 
there wasn't a lot of programming. And so there was a real kind of need to work on a number of different issues. So I did technical kind of advising on program development and I did research and I did policy stuff. And so as a consultant now, that's kind of what I continue to do. And I primarily support UN agencies and, and governments bilaterals for the most part. Thank you so much, Jean, for sitting down with our researchers and providing us with this insight. Would you be able to share some of the examples that Jean was able to share with you about her past experiences relating to gender-based violence? Yeah, so one of the initiatives that we talked about was her work in 1999 done in Kosovo, and this was kind of what her first step into the humanitarian field was. So Kosovo essentially was one of the first programs where they were able to switch operations to local funding and keep funding going past humanitarian actors pulling out funding. Um, So we were able to ask her some questions about what she thought led to such success in terms of sustainable design for the program. Um, She gave us a lot of great insight on that. So what happened in Kosovo was that the space where we had the women's center donated by the government and the U.S. government paid the rent because the local government couldn't afford the rent on this building. But as the town recovered and there was more kind of infrastructure and there was more budget and so on, the government sort of had more stability and they were able to donate the building and the people who ran the center we had a very specific strategy for building their capacity to meet their fiscal responsibilities or their budgetary responsibilities and their administrative responsibilities, which is often like the big overlooked issue, right? Is it, can the program sort of be sustained? Can they access ongoing funding and so on? This commitment to sustainable programming is so critical in building out GBV initiatives in the humanitarian space. Pretty much all the GBV interventions that we're going to specialize GBV interventions that are going to be introduced in a humanitarian emergency need to be sustained beyond the emergency itself. And so from the very start of the implementation of the program, there needs to be a kind of anticipation of how this program is going to be sustained once the humanitarian funding pulls out and the there's a shift to recovery and then on to sort of development funding. Good practice requires that GBV specialists who come from sort of the broader international community very quickly identify local organizations, women's organizations, women's rights organizations, and women-led organizations, and where appropriate and where safe, you know, relevant government partners to the extent possible to lead programming and figure out how these partners can sustain those programs beyond, you know, the humanitarian response. So that strategy has been replicated now in a number of other places. And there are lots of other ways in which GBV, so for example, coordination mechanisms, almost always now when they get 
when they start up in humanitarian places, if they haven't, if coordination mechanisms are not pre-existing, then typically, again, if it's safe, the coordination, um, the international coordination partners will seek to partner with the national government so that when the international partners leave, if they leave, or when they shift to kind of development phase, the national government will have the sort of support and capacity to take over their, you know, humanitarian places where we've seen that happen. So there's just a kind of recognition from the start in programming, in coordination, that you need to link in to local systems and work with them and build them up the greatest extent possible and really resource them. Having said that, a few years ago, the global GBV area of responsibility, which is the coordinating, the sort of overarching coordinating system for internally displaced settings, did a review on localization, which is a kind of global commitment to try and improve humanitarian capacity to support local systems. And, you know, we're not investing enough in local women's organizations and local and women-led organizations. I mean, the money is not sufficiently getting into the hands of these local women yet. So I would say within the, I mean, I maybe going out on a limb here, I would say that the GBV community works harder than maybe some other sectors of humanitarian response. There's committed to localization more, but it's not, doesn't mean we necessarily succeed. So the Kosovo example is a good example, but, you know, we have a lot to, we still have a lot of work to do in terms of building up these systems around the world and really particularly resourcing the local women's organizations and women-led organizations. Is there a specific difference between sexual exploitation and gender-based violence within the field? Yes, there's a huge difference between these two uh, phrases. Like sexual exploitation and abuse, or SEA, refers to a specific isolated case, whereas gender-based violence references more of a trend or social phenomena. Crediting definition made Available by the UN, sexual exploitation refers to any actual or attempted abuse of the position of vulnerability, differential power, or trust, including but not limited to profiting morality, socially or politically from sexual exploitation or another. Gender-based violence, on the other hand, refers to a harmful acts taken against an individual, namely adult and adolescent females, as a result of this gender. Gender-based violence is rooted in gender inequality, discrimination, the abuse of power, and harmful norms. There are obvious linkages to be made between GBV and SEA, such as abuse of power by the perpetrator, but it is important to recognize the difference when discussing their presence in the humanitarian world. Thank you for making those differences clearer. I think that's an important distinction that you just made. I just feel like it can kind of be confusing because some people, even GBV people sort of talk about SEA as GBV, um, but I find it's more helpful to kind of maintain some distinction between the two of them because 
I think of SEA as an incident type. And I think of GBV as a social phenomenon. So SEA, I feel like can happen to men, women, boys, and girls. And GBV, I feel like describes the problem of violence against women and girls based on gender discrimination. And some people use GBV to talk about other, you know, some people use it much more broadly to talk about violence based on gender norms or violence based on gender identity. I don't because I feel like that that really transitions it to a different meaning that doesn't have particular value. It it kind of diffuses the language so much that it doesn't it doesn't have a utility. That's my feeling about it. So I use it very specifically to talk about violence against women and girls based in gender discrimination, which was how it was introduced. I mean, that was what it was originally, that was why the language was originally introduced. Sexual exploitation and abuse. I mean, when women and girls experience sexual exploitation and abuse, then it it is a function of that problem of gender-based violence. But sexual exploitation and abuse, because we're talking about an incident type, we're talking about a type of violence rather than a social problem, it can also be experienced by men and boys. And so to call SEA GBV can be really confusing. So what we're really talking about when we talk about SEA in the humanitarian spaces, we're talking about types of sexual exploitation and abuse that are committed by humanitarian actors against you know, populations that they're serving. So that's a very specific issue. So just to distinguish that because the language itself can be super confusing how people use these different terms and you know all the time I run up against sort of confusion around language all the time just having clarity around the language I think is a really important first first step the reason why the term GBV is actually useful is because it really underscores that All of these different types of violence against women and girls have this sort of common denominator of gender discrimination. But SEA is this issue of that's a real problem within the humanitarian community that the humanitarian community has a very specific kind of accountability responsibility because it's the humanitarian actors who are perpetrating this. What about in regards to more recent work, especially with the impacts of COVID-19? I know this has changed the structure and systems of humanitarian aid across the world. And has there been any large changes in regards to the work that Jean does or the issues that she's facing? Yeah, for sure. So Jean was actually in Kenya um, when COVID kind of gained its momentum and she's now back in the States. So we were able to ask her a few questions about how reworking these services to prevent gender-based violence had to be done in the pandemic. And she also was able to talk about how the pandemic almost heightened cognizance of the well-being of frontline workers that are dealing with gender-based violence. And that was super interesting to hear about. It's really hard to generalize across all these different humanitarian spaces, right? Because they're so, the contexts are so varied. But having said that, and now I'm going to try, I'm going to try and make a generalization. I think one of the things that happened when the GBV programming, so 
GBV programs by and large were not understood to be essential in the early days of COVID. And so many of them were shut down. So whether they were women and girls safe spaces or they were case management, service delivery, access point, and they were often re-envisioned as or reconstituted as remote services where the service providers would work from home or they'd provide um, remote services through mostly through telephones. And what became really clear is that those service providers, you know, everybody was staying home and they had childcare responsibilities or they had elder care responsibilities. They couldn't work their normal hours in the early days of the epidemic. And not only that, but they also couldn't be expected to work their normal hours from home. So there were, you know, all these issues, all these expectations around the case managers, um, direct service providers, that they were doing remote case management. In many cases, they were doing it from their own homes. And GBV programs, some GBV programs found themselves in the position of having to hire new case managers in the early days of of COVID and train up new case managers because some of those frontline case managers just didn't, you know, have the, they couldn't work full-time anymore. And I think that there was, you know, there was just a greater recognition about risk of burnout and, um, you know, high levels of stress because everybody was, well, I mean, we were all, you know, we were in globally, I think we were experiencing high levels of stress with regard to, regard to COVID. So trying to manage, you know, trying to help staff manage their, their, their own family responsibilities and really support them to reduce the amount of hours that they were working and hire new staff in order to meet the demand just to maintain the existing caseload, you know, all of that. Those were sort of common challenges across, across countries. Clearly, the humanitarian field has a lot of it has a lot of good that it can offer, but it does have a lot of problems that, as you helped us understand, that need to be held accountable, especially in relations to sexual exploitation and gender-based violence. Are there any final thoughts that you have as researchers moving forward about where the field is going in relation to this, or what positive changes we're hoping to see? Yeah, I think there's some really positive trends that are moving these international actors towards localizing aid efforts. And I think that is one of the biggest steps that needs to be taken in order to dismantle a lot of these power gaps and imbalances that exist between aid workers and affected populations. So I would say the localization of gender focused and beyond gender, just empowerment efforts for these populations is super critical. And it's great to see that it's moving in that direction. But obviously, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in that regards. And that's our episode for the week. As always, thank you for listening to the Global Inquirer. And thank you to Libby New and Yixing Shen for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, we would like to thank our special guest, Jean Moore, who provided us with an incredibly insightful look into the humanitarian world for appearing on this week's episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Please consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook. 